This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we have a real treat in store for those of you interested in the Eastern Front of World War II. David Stahl will be joining us to discuss Retreat from Moscow, a new history of Germany's winter campaign, 1941 to 1942. Available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, better known as FSG, as of 2019. Retreat from Moscow is the fifth installment in Stahl's ongoing reinterpretation of the war between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Stahl has a remarkable ability to weave together the experiences of everyone from field marshals to civilians into fascinating narratives. What's more, as Richard Evans has pointed out, he manages to do this without ever losing sight of the wider context of the action. Richard Overy and David Glantz have similarly noted that his previous work revises what we thought we knew about the war in the East. I'm pleased to report the retreat from Moscow continues in this fine tradition, but enough for me. We have the man himself here today. So without further ado, David, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Ryan. So to begin with, what brought you to the study of history? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I started, I actually went to technical school, so there was not even the option of doing history. We had a social studies hour on the last two sessions of Friday, which everyone enjoyed because it was the last two sessions on a Friday. Um, But when we did pick up history, I remember thinking, this is really fascinating stuff. And ultimately, unlike most of my classmates, ended up staying right through to the end, went to university. I can't say I went with some idea that I was going to be a historian. I went because I actually didn't know what else to do and uh, got to university. And that's really when I discovered history. I signed into an arts degree, did uh, a first year course on the Second World War. And I have to say, I everything I read, unlike anything before that, I just felt it was uh, really interesting. And, you know, that old saying, the more you know, the more questions you have. I remember going constantly to class with more questions and how is this? And maybe specifically on the war in the East, I remember being quite shocked. I know that's an overused term these days, but I remember being quite shocked that Everything I read about the Eastern Front, the numbers were just so large. And I remember thinking, I know about all of these battles in the West. At least I've heard of El Alamein and D-Day and so on. But how is it if these numbers are correct that 
we've heard so little about all of these battles in the East. I could never have known it then, but I think that was the beginning of uh, a sort of internal dialogue, both with my library and myself, about just exactly what this representation of the Second World War meant and the absence of uh, literature in the East. And the further I went, the more I did, uh, the more I think that phenomenon of just having more questions and and the curiosity just never ended. Uh, And here we are. Well, normally I would ask you about how you arrived at this book, but at this point with five installments, I think it's safe to say there's a bit of a pattern here. So instead, how did you find yourself taking up this larger project of of researching your way into the history of the entire Eastern Front? And then where does this book fit in that larger scope? Actually, I would say there was, I, I say this to many people, actually, and people who know me well actually don't believe this anymore. But I, I never really set out to write a series of books on the Eastern Front. Um, I mean, my first book was essentially my PhD. And even going into that, I think a lot of PhD students have this, you sort of have this reticence about, oh, gosh, this is going to be years of study and, uh, you know, it's going to be a very large work. Gosh, what if I get to 50 pages and don't have anything more to say? So there was no grand plan going into all of this, but I got through the PhD and felt that I'd made a contribution. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do in a PhD. You're supposed to make a contribution to new historiography. And I mean, I think that what came back from reviews and, and feedback that I was given substantiated that people did say that there was you know a lot of new in that and essentially from there I started to think well if there has been a new course to chart in looking at Operation Barbarossa so the German invasion of the Soviet Union I started to think well how does that continue and uh, the other thing I was very conscious of is that the methodology for writing that book was somewhat different insofar as when I looked at what had gone before, people hadn't actually spent as much time going as far down into the German military archives. So if you imagine that the German army, the OKH, um, and a number of critical war diaries, those are the things that people have essentially used time and again. And because I was living in Germany at the time, and I had access to the archive, and I I wasn't sure originally how much I would find. If I wanted to look for operational problems that undercut this whole operation, I wondered how much is out there. But I was very clear looking at the army group files were obviously standard. So I was looking at army group center. There are three army groups on the Eastern Front. I wanted to look at armies beneath those. So there are multiple armies that make up an army group. Uh, Then there's cores below that. And then there's divisions. And, you know, that, that gets to a lot of paper. If you look at the scale again of the Eastern Front, you're looking at, you know, in the German military archive, and for 1941, we still have a lot of the files. If you're looking at 1944, it can be a very different story. So the amount of paper was kind of mushrooming. And I was in some ways trying to limit that by looking specifically at the panzer groups, because I wanted to look at these questions about operational or Bewegungskrieg, how the German army basically moves and what problems they might encounter in that. And I found so much material. I mean, luckily, actually, in Germany, there's no limit on the size of your PhD. You can you can quite literally write a thousand pages if you want. And uh, actually, my professor, Rolf Tieter Muller, did say to me, I don't want some enormous tomb. There are a number of PhD students who think that it's all quantity and not quality. But uh, I came up with just over 200,000 words. And, and, and luckily, that's ultimately what was published. I think Cambridge wanted two paragraphs cut. So they were very good to me in that way. But I think when you have an experience like that, you find a lot of material, you feel you've made a big contribution, 
I wasn't one of those PhD students who gets to the end and said, oh, if I see nothing again of the Eastern Front, I couldn't be happier. That's sort of what, sort of what started it. And I don't think that's kind of ended. It's, if you're not making a contribution, I can imagine uh, you feel you've got nothing left to do. But the Eastern Front is just such a missing element, I think, of uh, the Second World War. There's just not that many people working, especially working operationally. There is a lot of very good historiography that comes out of Germany, but a lot of it is to do with what we would call the War of Annihilation. So they're looking at the Wehrmacht and they're looking at the same files, but they're asking very different questions. It's still really good research and very important even to someone like me doing operational history. But as each book has gone on, I've felt that there's been different aspects of this thesis, this kind of understanding the German army and how it fights that is that is followed through. And maybe as a final point, um, this book, The Retreat from Moscow, and anyone who's read the preceding ones will recognize there is something fundamentally different here in terms of normally, and on the internet, people say, oh, you're so critical of the German army. I actually don't think I'm critical of the German army. I'm just reporting what's in those files. And the German army, for all that understanding that people often have about, oh, they are tactically amazing. They are tactically extremely proficient. There's no question. Operationally, I think people have also in the past said they're amazing. And that's far less certain, I think. And I think my work and the work of some others recently has very much reflected that. Um, And strategically, it's quite disastrous. I mean, Germany's approach to the, the war at a strategic level is terrible. And that's been said for, I think, some decades. So that's hardly new. But I think we're charting a very new Uh, path in how we understand German operations. And that's what changes in the retreat from Moscow. Previous to that, the last four books have really shown just how problematic German operations are. And in the winter, we start to see a, a quite a different approach. And that's in a nutshell, the reason for that is German strategy for Operation Barbarossa is quite clear. They are not looking for battlefield victories. They are not looking to capture any given town or city. They are looking for the destruction of the Red Army and uh, the occupation of this eastern region in order to turn around and fight a much longer and larger war against a global empire, Great Britain. And as a result, they need this thing to end quickly. That is the overriding guiding principle for all of these operations. And in a nutshell, the operations don't equal that strategy. And as the the fighting goes on over the course of 1941, the shortfall between operational strength and the achievement of that strategic goal grows. They are, they are a long way from achieving that in spite of what people focus on. They focus on battles. They focus on numbers of captured soldiers and so on. That's the wrong thing to focus on. Those are just the classic indicators of military success. So people adopt them. But actually, the only way to understand this war is to understand it through the prism of Germany's own war. What are they trying to achieve? What goals do they set for themselves? And what does a relatively small country with a relatively small population base, very limited access to raw materials, all of these economic factors, what is the size of their population? How many losses can they sustain? These are the real factors we need to focus on in charting German success in the East, because they have started the largest land campaign in history. They are invading with three million men. They, they really can't afford this. They need those men to be bringing in their own crops, to be operating their own machinery. And if they cannot end this war, the implications are really quite disastrous. And the reason I say that all changes when we get to the winter of 41-42 is that the strategic goal changes. So after the Soviet offensive begins, essentially the Germans are 
reorienting what they need to do. I mean, it's a it's a Führer directive, a war directive from Hitler. I think it's directive number 39. And essentially he's saying we are no longer trying to conquer the Soviet Union. We're, we, we are now trying to hold the Eastern Front. That resets what Germany is trying to do. Its operations are no longer trying to destroy the Red Army, for which there's not really much chance. The Red Army has actually grown over the course of 1941. The Red Army has reached 8 million men, and there are, st- there are still a long way from a lot of the key economic centers that underwrite the Soviet war economy. So uh, this idea of people often measure the November and the early December German campaign as they try to, you know, get to Moscow and they're lurching another five kilometers further forward and they compare that to, well, now they're 35 kilometers from Red Square at their closest point. That is miles from ever achieving some kind of end goal victory in uh, the East because Moscow is so fortified and uh, because that's just simply not going to suffice to end Soviet resistance. So that's the real difference with the winter of 41-42. It's both what the Germans have set as their own goal and the ability of those of their operations in the period to achieve that. What is the big picture argument that you want people to take away out of that lesson, though? I think maybe at the most basic level, we need to consider, and something I discover a lot when I read um, books, perhaps Yes, in the Second World War, but you know, obviously when you're teaching military history as well, you end up reading books in a lot of other areas. It, with, with a different view, I'm often trying to get across a lot of material in short periods of time, you know. But I think how we understand warfare, I, I kind of feel like these classic military indicators are often evoked as a way of trying to make sense of campaigns. And often I think that there are specifics within campaigns that need to be better understood. Uh, that's certainly true of the, the war in the East, and I think it's actually true of a lot of other wars. We tend to just go in, you know, the side that's driving forward, that's the side that's sort of doing best, um, the side that's capturing the most. And of course, it's very difficult, and you, you need to be focused on whatever's happening on the ground, because in military history, especially if you write operational history, that's essentially what authors and typically what readers are interested in. They want to be in those command conversations and should we attack left, should we attack right, and, and, and a lot of detail in that. And sometimes people go very low. They, they start talking about, you know, soldiers' experiences because it's very relatable. As you're reading the book, if you read an Anthony Beaver or a Max Hastings, and I'm not being critical here, this is just, you know, the style that they have, but you get a lot of first-person accounts. So you're, you're brought into the fighting and, and people can relate to that. And it's very, you know, you get a lot of individual stories that are dramatic and all of this. It's it's kind of popular uh, history. But I wonder at that point, to what extent can you really understand the drivers of the campaign if a lot of the primary material is first-person accounts? Because none of these soldiers really have insight beyond the tactical environment that they're engaged in. And it makes for a very engaging reading, and I'm not saying that those books aren't valid. But if you truly want to understand a campaign, you need to see all of that even the the battles themselves and the battlefield commanders, we need to have that related back to some wider context. Otherwise, it's it's just a battle doesn't exist in a vacuum, especially on the Eastern Front, because there are so many and, and they're just constantly rolling on. It needs to be given some sort of strategic context. And in that sense, I think it's important to understand what each operation is seeking to achieve and how much does that fulfill any kind of strategic notion of this war. 
you know, we need to be focused on economic industrial factors. Those are the context through which we understand operations, because those are what tell us why when Germany is losing far less men, far less material than the Soviets. And at that point, if you stop your analysis, it seems very clear, well, the Soviets are doing a lot worse and it's the Germans who are who are in the ascendancy. But of course, if you don't link it back to economic factors, that sounds okay. But if, if, the, if the Soviets have far more access to manpower, and I wouldn't want to overstate that, but they certainly do, uh, they have you know, the raw materials, they have lend-lease supplies coming in, they have strategic depth. If you put all of these factors in and you look at the that, that contrasted to Germany, a lot less casualties for Germany have a lot more meaning. And that's true of military history. One needs to understand the strategic context for various armies. Well, very briefly so that our listeners can follow along, what is the broader narrative of this period that you're dealing with? Because we're talking about two phases of operations, the first from December 5th to January 7th, and then from January 7th until the end of the month with some epilogue as you wrap things up in your conclusion. Broad picture, what's going on at this time? I mean, essentially, this is the uh, what we would say is the defensive phase, the first long defensive phase of the Eastern Front. For those who are very well read, people might well say that's a bit of a misnomer, and they'd be correct. We kind of broadly categorize preceding five and a half months as the offensive phase. And, and for shorthand, for people who are not so well read in this area, that's true. But the reality is that would depend also on what part of the Eastern Front you're looking at in that five and a half months. And basically, at the beginning, the front is largely north to south moving forward. But over time, more and more areas bogged down because the only ability for this very large German Ost here, this Eastern army that's driving into the Soviet Union, the only thing that's really pushing it forward are the panzer groups. Now, if you take the entirety of the Eastern Front, we're talking 150 divisions, but there's only 30 divisions from that 150 that are concentrated into the four panzer groups. And as they themselves suffer from the attrition of both movement in the East and more and more fighting, the front settles down. And those areas that settle down aren't just standing static. The Soviets are actually launching offensives all the way through 1941 in different parts of the front. And some of them are quite remarkable for just how many men are hitting the German lines and how many problems that causes the Germans. So defensive fighting is not just a winter phenomenon for the Germans. But certainly that's the area that we, we know best. And so from really the 5th of December, when the, the Germans call off their offensive against Moscow, and then we see in earnest from really that evening and into the 6th and onwards, the arrival of more and more Soviet strategic reserves on the German front and the beginning of a major uh, counteroffensive. And in this initial period, the Germans are not so much reacting to the offensives themselves. In small places they are. Yes, they're being attacked, so they're pulling back. But what there is a recognition of from the German high command is that the preceding offensive toward Moscow has massively overextended these armies, and they are strung out at great distance from their supply lines. In fact, a lot of the divisions are completely stretched. They're about two or 300 kilometers sometimes, elements of a single division, because what they've encountered as they were attacking was we don't have enough fuel so what we'll do or we don't have enough trucks because they're breaking down because of the snow and all the rest of it we'll make these battle groups and so we'll strip everything from uh, the larger formation make a very mobile very efficient 
stop the losses and all the rest of it in the units. And they drive those forward in the attempt to try and continue the offensive. But that means that the units get spread out. And when they call the offensive off, actually German intelligence isn't aware of all of these mobile uh, reserve armies that the Soviets have. The idea through the end of November and into the beginning of December is the last battalion will decide the issue here at Moscow. So the idea is just throw everything in. And however bad it is for us as the Germans, it must be worse for the Soviets. But actually, the Soviets are holding back reserve armies, and that's what's going to constitute this major offensive. So initially, the Germans are pulling back in places, not because they're under uh, Soviet pressure, but because they're they, they just know that they're overextended. There's no way they can hold these distant positions that they hold. So they're pulling back. In other places, they are under real pressure. Just north of Moscow, uh, in the place of the uh, third panzer group, uh, they are pulling back under real pressure, and it's quite the crisis. But we need to understand that crisis, which becomes the narrative for people who have a, a basic idea of the winter of 41, 42, they would say, yes, this is a period of real crisis for the Germans. We need to contextualize that crisis. We need to understand it's actually not a general crisis. Remember, eight, Army Group Center is 800 kilometers north-south, so that's enormous. And there are, as of the 1st of January, so let's just use the shorthand, 1st of January, there are six armies. Technically, at the beginning, there are only four plus two panzer groups, um, but let's say six armies. So these six armies are spread out across this vast distance. And although we, we, we talk about our Army Group Center's crisis, and that's also the narrative I had read, because that's what we see in the books that have written before mine. Very importantly here, though, when I've read though when I reread those books for this research project, I started to recognize something that I hadn't writ recognized when I read them probably 20 years earlier. If you have a very good sense of geography and you understand exactly what are the units on the Eastern Front, you are much more aware that a lot of those histories that have preceded mine are very focused on the points of real crisis. And because, as I say, those are very specific to certain areas along this 800-kilometer front, and they are not general. It's very important. They are not general. The crisis is not everywhere. If you just write your narrative focused on specific areas, you're getting a distorted picture of what's going on in Army Group Center. And because I recognized this as I was reading, you know, we, talk, we teach, teach students to try and read critically. I started to realize, well, my research for this has got to involve all of the six armies and then, again, go into the corps, go into the divisions to the extent that I can. I mean, there's still a lot of paper there to read. I didn't read every divisional diary or every corps diary, but I, I, I read a, a good deal. And at, at that point, you get a very different picture. So in this initial period, if I was to say, as I said before, the third panzer group is under real pressure and suffering crisis, that word applies. But is that the only place that the Soviets are attacking? Actually, no. If you go up to the 9th Army on the northern flank of Army Group Center, they are being attacked at Kalinin. But day after day, the Soviet attacks come in and they defend them. And they're sometimes writing things about, wow, the Soviets just keep running into our defensive fire and we annihilate them. Uh, we're certainly under some pressure. There, there, there's a lot of them. There's more turning up. Remember, German intelligence doesn't anticipate this. So they're kind of shocked by just what's going on. But that's not to say if we're looking at this war as a multifaceted occurrence, it's not generic across the front that there's crisis for the Germans. Actually, it's some of these Soviet formations that are being absolutely decimated. So the defensive phase 
is everything. It is both German defensive victories and German losses of ground and chaos and retreat and even disaster. But again, specific to certain areas, there's not a generic picture here emerging. And that, if I was to shorten this period, that's the picture that we see developing. Again and again, different areas are having real crisis. So again, if we take this early area, I talked about north of Moscow. If we go south of Moscow, where Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army is fighting, he is withdrawing, but he is withdrawing. And that's, again, a classic indicator of, of, of military uh, defeat. He's withdrawing, but he wants to withdraw. It's his choice to withdraw, and it would make no sense to try and hold his ground. So a successful withdrawal, I would argue, is to the benefit overall of the German army in the East. There's no way they can hold these overextended positions. They want to fall back on their supplies. They want to fall back on a more defensive position, which is ultimately where Guderian will end up. So it makes sense to do this, even though one might at a rudimentary level say, ah, the Soviets are attacking, Guderian's falling back, ah, the Soviets are winning a battle. And when Guderian does fight them, when there is a a contact, and largely he's ahead of them, so he's withdrawing in good time. But where there is a contact, again, the Germans are very proficient. And it has to be said that the Soviets are learning this style of warfare through the winter, and we'll see just how costly that is for them. The fact that the Germans themselves have been on the offensive for five and a half months and have suffered as many casualties as they have, never underestimate how costly Barbarossa and all these preceding victories actually are for them. They've suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties because even for a very proficient tactical formation and the operations are a bit more, uh, I would say that there's good and bad in these, but even for all of that um, military acumen, everything they have it's still very costly to launch uh, offensive operations against, especially against determined resistance. And that is what we're going to see with the Soviets. Their offensives will be undermined by the fact that they're doing it in winter, undermined by the fact that they haven't got enough heavy equipment, and absolutely undermined by the fact that they are not well led. They don't have good officer corps. The fact that they've reconstituted things like the, the Western Front, I think it's been completely annihilated two and a half times over the course of all of these German offensives. They have got reserves that have restocked the army. But you've got to ask, yes, soldiers can have a, a, an eight-week course and be basically soldiers. But your real problem is, if you're trying to launch major operational offensives, is how good is your staff work? How good are your intermediate officers? And they're really hamstrung because, A, they are trumped up into these positions. Some of them are just party hacks. They have no real military uh, education. They aren't supported with their heavy weapon w- weaponry. And they're getting orders from above that say, you must take this town by this prescribed date and time. And they don't have the time nor the training to know, well, we better conduct reconnaissance. We better uh, probe the German lines and find out where are the weak spots. And then we'll concentrate our artillery, which we don't have. And then we'll try and break through on this weak sector. And then we'll support that from behind with all this stuff requires staff work and training. They don't do it. They find where the German positions are and they largely just mass wave assault to try and take them. Even Zhukov, the commander of the Soviet Western Front, has to issue an order as early as, I might be getting the date wrong, but I think it's the 9th of December, to say, commanders need to stop doing this. And he reissues orders like this, and you'll find uh, those kinds of Soviet orders, sometimes even captured by the Germans, stipulating the problems of these Soviet offensives. And that all serves to aid the German defense of their position. Sometimes you almost encounter these incredulous German reports that describe in great detail the Soviet offensives and the the situation they're faced with, where they get utterly just decimated. 
And then they have these concluding sentences that say things like, after this complete disaster, they repeated the attack nine more times. And you just get this this sense, even for someone like me who's spent a lot of time reading these things, we think, God, it must have been horrendous. I mean, battalions who send in reports saying uh, there are 3,000 casualties or enemy casualties in front of our lines. What must that be like? And and, and, and just the waste that you can see resulting from these extremely difficult situations for the Soviets, on the one hand, badly led, at the same time, trying to launch these things through uh, knee-deep snow. People often characterize this winter period as being the period that disadvantages Germany because they're suffering from the winter. Are they suffering from the winter? Absolutely. But frostbite affects the Soviets as well. Yes, they have better uniforms, typically, but not absolutely. I found multiple reports which suggested, and actually it's in, if you look at Glantz and you look at Alexander Hill and some of the other people who have written on this area, it's quite clear not all of these reservists uh, who have been called to the colours are well equipped for the winter. And even if you are, though, the point is if you spend a lot of time outside in these conditions, if you can't get back to some kind of warm barracks, it doesn't really matter how many how nice your uniform is, you are slowly freezing out there. The Soviets certainly suffer huge casualties from frostbite as well. Indeed, it's the Germans because they're falling back on defensive villages. That's ultimately where they will construct their lines because they need them to stay warm. Uh, And a lot of the fighting isn't perhaps what people understand, north-south lines. It's fighting for settlements. As the Germans have fallen back, they've burned everything that's gone before them. So it's the Soviets who are sometimes more exposed than the Germans are. The Germans stay in these villages and defend them tooth and nail because they recognize the importance of having uh, warm quarters. And again, I don't want to undercut this idea that the Germans don't suffer from the winter. Clearly, there's the whole issue of not having enough uniforms. And that does count against them. They're doing everything they can. Remember, this is the German Wehrmacht. They improvise on every level, and that brings out their ruthless side. Um, This is certainly for them a a war of annihilation. They are taking these things from civilians. Uh, They have uh, obviously, they'll take things from captured POWs. But yeah, it's just, I think what I get, if I had to make one summative comment about this book is, the the image of the winter of 41, 42 changed a lot for me, given I had sort of grown up like everyone else on reading more standard accounts. And I, and I think it just underlines why, as a researcher, we need to get back to those primary materials, because the primary materials sometimes give us a very different story. We just get this generic Germans suffered, the Soviets were in the ascendancy, always attacking, the Germans were in retreat, and it was all a disaster. It absolutely wasn't. In a, most of the tactical reports that I would read would actually be favorable to the Germans because they're in defensive positions being attacked and they're very proficient tactically. The Germans are well-trained. That's not always true of Soviet formations. In fact, it's very much the exception in 41, 42 for a lot of these Red Army guys. And when you see the attrition that they're suffering, that the losses that the Soviet forces are, are suffering, you begin to understand that because you realize whoever the next guys are who come into the line, who are going to attempt this, they haven't had that learning curve because they haven't had the ability to survive. It really takes time for the Soviets to learn this because if you keep suffering horrendous losses and the winter of 41, 42 is horrendous losses for the Soviets, there's no ability to, to survive and to start learning these processes. To your point about matching operations and strategy though, there is an interesting argument that you're developing over the course of this narrative. So again, as you point out, a lot of the historiography treats this as Germans retreating, Soviets advancing, ergo Soviet victory. You disagree. You're saying this is one of the only times that the Wehrmacht was 
ever even close to matching its operations with its strategic objectives. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, That's correct. If the standard in my preceding books has been to look at these operations that we're discussing in great detail, but in the analysis, link that back to the strategic goal and not to lose sight of that, then it seems to me it would be wrong when I come to another book to adopt some different kind of framework. So I would say the methodology in this book is the same as the methodology in the last books. The conclusion is very different, but largely because that strategic goal on on the uh, 8th of December when Hitler issues this new war directive, he is very specific about the fact that the Eastern Front is no longer to move forward. It is it is a defensive. Uh, they, they're now very much on the defensive. But what does that mean to say they're on the defensive? What are they, What is actually the goal, though? And it specifically highlights the importance of major population centres. And that is, I think, absolutely correct. The East is quite barren, especially in 1941. Uh, there's been a lot of fighting. A lot of infrastructure has been damaged. And essential for this winter period when supplies are in, uh, there's a great deal of shortage and the ability to defend a position when even rivers are frozen. So even rivers don't constitute the the same defensive barrier that they might constitute in in other conditions. Large population centres are very important. They're important for everything. Think about what they have. They have the ability to service a headquarters. So they've got radio stations, they've got airfields, they've got hospitals, train stations, heated barracks, warehouses, mechanical workshops, industrial kitchens, public baths to repair, to help people, and everything that soldiers might want. You know, they've got cinemas and postal infrastructure, they've got brothels, they've got everything. The Germans recognize in this war directive that they want to hang on to, so in other words, their defense is going to be anchored on major population centers. For Army Group Center, which is the the epicenter of the major Soviet uh, winter offensive, that would be towns in the north or going from the north like Kalinin, uh, like uh, Kaluga, Rezhev, Vyazma, Smolensk in the rear. That's where Army Group Center's headquarters is. But further south, Bryansk, Oral, Kursk, these are major cities. These are Russian cities. And a lot of them serve as army headquarters. And a lot of them will be sort of defensive bastions that the Germans will anchor their defenses on. Or Perhaps not. There's also, they just serve as important communication uh, centers. That's what the Germans identify as needing to hold in order to survive this winter. And again, if we reduce it all down to the very end point, how many of those cities that I, would, that I just listed are actually held? They lose Kaluga uh, in the sort of center and they lose Kalinin. Kalinin is right on the front lines. So it's literally, there's been fighting going on in Kalinin since October, and the Soviets constantly raid, even deep into the city at points. So the fact that they didn't help hold that, it was also a, a bombed out ruin, to be honest, is not surprising. They do lose Kaluga. They hold all of the others. So again, what was that German strategic goal? To hold the Eastern Front. What does that mean? Hold on to these population centers, and they defend them successfully through the winter. So at that point, you might just say, well, it seems that German operations did actually equal the strategic goal. For all of the the losses that they sustained, for all of the retreats, the chaos, there were real disasters for the Germans through the, the winter. I don't want to sugarcoat that. What I'm saying is it's just a much more complex story than people have previously represented. But ultimately, yes, the Germans do hold those. They are in exceedingly important to holding the line. 
And then conversely, we could ask the question, okay, if that's my standard for the Germans, let's just briefly look at the Soviets. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm already reading Amazon reviews of my book, not that I spend a lot of time on those, but occasionally I look at these things. And people are always surprised that, ah, David Stahl, he doesn't look at the Soviet side. Yep, I haven't done that for five books and I don't read Russian. So, And that's a, an amount of paperwork in and of itself. And there's plenty of very good people who work on that area. So I don't claim to be anything like the Soviet expert. But if we just go there and we look at a lot of that um, material that we have, what's the Soviet strategic goal? Now, initially, they're much more conservative. They're just looking, their initial uh, uh, offensives are just to push back these German pincers north and south of Moscow. They're not seeking anything more ambitious. In that sense, they're very successful in doing that. As that a campaign develops and the Soviets recognize, wow, we're really taking ground here, the Germans aren't prepared for this, they become ever more ambitious to the point where in early January, I think it's the 7th of January, don't quote me on that, but it's in the book, the Soviet plan for the next stage of the, the major offensive, which it has been ratcheting up and expanding across the front, is for nothing less than the destruction of Army Group Center. And again, if we just shorten down and say, well, what did they actually achieve? Well, they don't destroy Army Group Center. That much is clear. Do they encircle any of the six armies? They don't encircle any of them. Do they encircle any of the corps? Nope. And they do actually cut off and encircle a small number of German divisions. All of those German divisions break back into the German lines. That's not to say they don't suffer casualties and loss of equipment and all the rest of it. And that's part of the crisis I've referred to that is the case in various areas. But ultimately, the Soviets don't achieve their strategic goal. They they don't capture these major uh, centers and they don't destroy major German formations. So at that most basic level, at that strategic level, it's very clear to me that the Soviets are the ones who are struggling to to achieve their objective. Now, the other way to look at all of this is my first book was very interested in those operational and strategic questions. And I was asking that question in the first book, to what extent did German operations achieve their objective and conclude that they don't, they fall well short. After that book, I've always argued this is a war of attrition. The German offensive capacity to end this war in the East is now impossible. I mean, because of the, the losses in the panzer groups. The panzer groups, as I said, they're, they're small and they're extremely important for the ability to drive this German army forward. And in that first two months of the campaign, they've already suffered up to or more than 50% of losses in their motorization. And even just in the panzer, the number of panzers that they have available, tanks. And that compromises their ability to continue large-scale offensives. So at that point, I argue this war is now clearly attritional. Will the Germans still be able to attack on certain areas of the front? Absolutely. Will they be able to win various tactical or even operational successes at various areas? Absolutely. But their ability to ever end this war in one quick campaign, that is, is gone. So the war now is going to be a, a series of multiple offensives, build up, launch an offensive, launch another offensive. It's attritional. Now, if that's what it is in the winter of 41-42, and I, I think it is, then let's just look at the numbers. So even if we don't worry about the strategic goals, if we just look at the numbers of losses, the Soviets are going to lose in the winter of 41-42, and this is relatively new research coming out by um, Lev Livahovsky and Boris Kavalierchek, who've got a, their work has now been translated into English, and it's and it's quite revealing just uh, how that they've, again, uh, 
raised the number of uh, Soviet casualties because uh, the preceding literature had suggested that they were even lower. But they suggest it's upwards of 1.6 million 1.6 million Soviet casualties for this winter period, contrasting that with German casualties, which are 262,000. That's a six to one deficit. Now, it, everything I said before is also true. Yes, Germany has a smaller population base. That is still remarkable. Remember, the Soviets have a very long way to get to Berlin. And if this is an attritional war and they're going to have to launch multiple offensives for the amount of ground that they are winning at this rate of cost, they're almost making the distance to Berlin even further because what they will ultimately learn is, yeah, the, the Red Army has the, the ability to sustain large numbers of losses, that, that they, they will lose many more men as the war goes on, but they are more successful in their offensives. Um, they support them better, they plan them better, and they, uh, when I say support them with, with much more heavy equipment, and they're not always trying to do them in the middle of winter. This is in some ways a bit of a, a perfect storm for the Soviets. They're trying to do everything under incredibly difficult conditions. If the German Wehrmacht had invaded the Soviet Union in the winter of 41, 42, uh, one, I don't want to get into hypotheticals, but it's clear they would not have had anything like the success they had had in the summer because the, the difficulties of a winter campaign are clear. So really, as I see it, any way you look at it, both strategic factors or even just this, this attritional style, it is absolutely clear to me that the, that the calculus here for how we understand this needs to be rethought. On the other hand, and I'm perfectly willing to accept, if people say, well, I just think it's all about which, which side is, is doing the attacking, which side is doing the retreating, if that's your goal, that's fine, uh, then it's very clearly a Soviet success. But I think we need to be more nuanced in looking at what are the under, underlying factors that affect these campaigns? Well, Hitler is certainly of the mindset that it comes down to who's attacking and who's retreating. One of the things that you're taking aim at here is uh, often advanced in memoirs and appears in some histories that this halt order that's issued two days into the Soviet offensive is basically what prevents Army Group Center from completely collapsing. Again, my starting point, I don't want to sound like a contrarian to everyone. Like, you know, I've, I've got a problem with everyone who's written everything. But look, again, I just try to logic and reason through these. The the orthodoxy tells us that the Holt order was really this remarkably successful order that thanks to Hitler's iron will and the issuing of this order, the German retreats largely end and we don't end up in some kind of the analogy is always uh, 1812 scenario where the German army withers on the vine as it retreats back through Russia. And in some ways, therefore, Hitler was correct. That always struck me as problematic. And it, and it really should have struck a lot more people as problematic. The reason being, you take that 800 kilometers of front. Do you think that one blanket order can simply account for that's why the Germans hold the line. If it was that simple, why didn't Hitler, and he absolutely did, in 43 or 44, just issue a blanket order saying no one will retreat in those times? It's just not that simple. The German army is a complicated organization. And the reason why Auftrag's tactic, this mission-oriented tactics, which basically, in a nutshell, devolves responsibility to lower-level Officers. This is a German phenomenon from the 19th century. Why do they do it? Because they recognize that at lower levels of command, the responsible officer is better able to assess factors that someone further up the chain cannot. 
person down the down the line can look at the topography, can look at local conditions, is getting local intelligence in real time in the way that his commanding officer or his and his and his commanding officer may not. So this devolved responsibility is part of Germany's success. That accounts for Germany's success, not just in the 19th century, but in the First World War and certainly in the Second World War. That's part of the reason why they are tactically so good. If you just remove all of that, and that's exactly what Hitler's whole order does. It does not give anyone autonomy to make their own decisions. They just now need to hold the front line. If you take that away, does that help them or does that hinder them? It absolutely hinders them. What do you think a battalion commander who's standing there with difficult conditions concludes if he sees that local intelligence is saying we're going to get hit by a major Soviet offensive and there's no way we can hold, we don't have enough, whatever it is, supplies, we don't have enough ammunition, but I'm not allowed to retreat. So I can stand here with all my men and get killed and that won't serve the German cause at all. Or I could pull back four kilometers. That gives me the ability to perhaps meet my next supplies, find a better defensive position, whatever it does. But that man determines as the military expert, the officer calling the shots, he determines that's the best tactical solution. And he's probably nine times out of 10 correct. The idea of the guy, the good national socialist who decides to defend the position to the last, well, what does that serve? And time and again, these German officers recognize this, even at the highest levels, they recognize this. And one of the things about the the research for this book is I was able to go through the second army, the second panzer army, the fourth army, the third panzer army, the fourth panzer army, and the ninth army, and chart every one of their commanders and their response to this order. To a man, they are all against it. Kluger, the army group commander, he is absolutely against it. And various corps commanders that I could get a picture of actually what they would write, because I can't always get that, they are absolutely against it because they recognize these things. They are military professionals and they want to be given the autonomy to make the right decision. They also want that for their subordinates. They don't want some sort of overarching order that ties everyone's hands. So what begins is a process whereby we start to see a spectrum between those who are worried and trying to do their best to observe the order and those actually like Guderian, he represents in my book the other extreme on this spectrum, who couldn't care less and he will just fall back. He's falling back long before there's any contact with the Soviets. And make a long story short, and perhaps to give that as, a, as an example of this, he is pulling back from his offensives all the way to the Oka and Susa River, which uh, the lines that uh, it's a bit difficult without a map to show everyone, but it, it pulls back to a line. Rivers are a good place to fall back. It allows him to defend uh, Kursk and uh, Oral, which is the command places for the Second Panzer Army and the Second Army. Um, it gives him a defensive position. He's fallen back a long way on his supplies. But of course, the implications of Guderian, even a man with the pedigree of Guderian, who actually is is well liked by Hitler, falling back so far, so fast, because he already reaches those lines. I'm trying to think. It's it's by the end of December, but it, it could be some days before. I just can't remember the date. Actually, he's fired on the 26th of December. So he's obviously on this line before then, because after that, the new commander, Schmidt, does not fall back any further. So he's fallen back a very long way uh, in a very short time, and he doesn't care for the Hitler order. He doesn't care for what Kluger's telling him. Kluger is trying to walk the line between observing the order and saying, yes, uh, mein Führer, we will try and uh, we, we, we will do this. At the same time, Kluger is clearly subverting the order as well. 
He's very sympathetic, even to Guderian, who he doesn't get along with at all, but he's sympathetic to what he's trying to do. And I think what's particularly interesting, if I cited cite another example, uh, the Fourth Army is one of these armies that has a really hard time over the winter. That and the Ninth Army probably suffer the worst. And at the southern extreme of this army is a corps by Heinrichi. And we have, or I, I looked at the Fourth Army's war diary. Actually, I looked at the Army Group Center's war diary, the Fourth Army's war diary, and I think it's the 43rd Army Corps that he commands, Heinrichi commands. In none of those diaries is there any evidence that in one of these real crisis points after the Holt Order has been issued, there's no evidence that there's any order coming from Kluger or from Heinrichi himself to withdraw the corps. And he's not allowed to because the Holt Order is in place. He has no authorization. Unless he gets authorization from Hitler, he's not allowed to pull back. But we have the private letters to his wife from Heinrichi. And in these is the only evidence that he's writing about how difficult it is and how much he's suffering. And then he has a sentence where he basically says, thank God at the, at the last minute, Kluger gave us orders to pull back. Now there's no authorization from Hitler and nothing. And Army Group Center's war diary is wonderful because it in December, there's no diary for January, but in December, it gives you long verbatim transcripts of conversations between Kluger and Hitler. There's no evidence of any withdrawal for the 43rd Army Corps. But clearly, when push comes to shove, when it's really at the point of this whole Army Corps is going to be devastated, Kluger is subverting the order and saying, now you guys can pull back. Just do it. And the question for me is then, how much of this is going on around the Eastern Front to survive this real crisis? And these real crisis points, at what point do they say, okay, we're going to observe the whole order? And at what point do they just pull back? Multiple pieces of evidence I found. And keep in mind, that's going to be hard for the historian because they know this goes against orders. Are they always writing it down? Well, sometimes they are writing it down. Sometimes it's quite explicit. Sometimes you can just reconstruct it from things that they, they write. For example, they sometimes talk about, we've got to keep the snow clear in the rear so we can quickly withdraw. Uh, so we can quickly move back and forward. Now, nominally, you could say, well, hang on, the hold order's in place. You, you, you're not allowed to withdraw. Why would you need to worry? Yeah, maybe it's for supplies, but sometimes they're refer- referring to rearward movements. So they're clearly thinking along these lines. And I think that's a, a really important piece of context for understanding how the German army is engaging with Hitler's order. I think what I, I would also add very quickly is we shouldn't see all of this as resistance. This isn't some, the German army is somehow separate from the Nazi regime. They are doing all of this in the service of Adolf Hitler. They're not plotting some, I mean, the whole plot of Army Group Center, because Army Group Center becomes the sort of the center of a lot of planning. This is this is going to come beginning towards the end of 1942 and then onward, when the war is starting to look a lot less one. At this point, that's not what we're seeing here. We're looking at self-preservation. That's what's motivating them. And they're doing it very much in the service of the, the regime that they're fighting for. So we need to be careful that this is not some sort of resistance act. This is very much about survival. But it's interesting also how many commanders are taking part in this. It seems to be quite ubiquitous across the front. I mean, Kluger's even having conversations sometimes with corps commanders. Uh, there's an example out of the Ninth Army where the corps commander says, this is ridiculous. Why are we staying on this line? And the incremental slight withdrawals here and there at the, at the absolute point of crisis, this makes no sense. I am just going to withdraw my core. Uh, I don't know how far, I can't remember, but he's just going to make a, a, a basically a, a strategic withdrawal of 50 kilometers or whatever it is. 
And Kluger gets on the phone to him and says, no, you just can't do that. You have to understand we, we have to hold these lines. And the guy says, well, I'm going to do it. And Kluger says, right, put your chief of staff on and essentially you're fired and we'll put the next man in. Kluger's walking the line between what Hitler has told him is an absolute and he is giving whatever leeway he can and allowing this because he's also hearing about rearward movements and there's no process whereby he's punishing these officers unless they do what Guderian did or what this corps commander did and just flagrantly pull back everything and 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 adopt that extreme of the spectrum where they just say no I don't care for anything I'm just going to go back to what I think is the right line otherwise everyone's trying to walk this delicate line and because the Soviets are not so good tactically it's where we can link in these other conversations even small movements are enormously beneficial to the Germans. I'll give you one more example on this. One of the ways in which one of the units was trying to essentially retain their operational freedom or their tactical freedom and observe the order was they recognized we're about to be hit by a major Soviet offensive. We cannot hold this. So they withdrew a number of kilometers. And as the Soviet, just as the Soviet attack was coming in, they let the Soviets take the territory. Now, the Soviets are moving forward a number of kilometers they're outrunning their heavy artillery they are in the attack so they they don't have any dug in positions and the germans have pulled back as they pull back they pull in reserves from the flanks they're gathering up their strength and the soviets are moving forward in the belief well we've just broken through the german line we're in the exploitation phase we are a number of kilometers ahead of and this has been a very successful offensive and then the germans hit them on the attack. The Germans are very good on the attack. Not trying to do any kind of operational attacks, attack 50 kilometers. They're only attacking a few kilometers. They attack a few kilometers into men who are outside of their protection of heavy equipment. They have no dug in positions and they're not expecting this. They drive into these Soviet formations. It's utterly devastating for the Soviets and the Germans retake their line. And on the maps, there was no retreat. And yet, the Soviet attack was 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 held or blunted or however you want to put it however you want to put it. But these are the kinds of oper- or tactical solutions that German commanders are coming up with, and they are very successful. Time and again, tactical engagements in this period are successful for the Germans. And so, I, I, it's a complex story to tell, and I and I hope the book is um, perhaps a bit more coherent than some of these explanations I have to give. But uh, essentially, the hold order is not as simple as everyone's always characterized it to be. It's a much more nuanced response from the German commanders that depends on the army, it depends on the commander, and it depends on the period because those uh, those, those those responses, uh, you know, I trace basically the book a one week or sorry, 10 days at a time. I sort of go through every army for 10 days at a time. And then I sort of have a different chapter where I look at the thematic issues and then I go back into an operational account. Because I think if you're just reading operations all the time, it can start to feel a little bit heavy and, you know, you're getting a very top down perspective. So I like to sort of move between these two. But in each of these 10 day discussions, um, I look at every one of the armies and I try to look at them in in equal depth. Because again, at the very beginning, as I was saying, we see this complicated picture. I sort of discovered, well, how am I going to write the book if I'm seeing this very complicated picture? It's it's not always defensive successes, but it's certainly not always uh, crisis and defeat on the defensive either. So I decided, well, to, do, to be judicious and and, and to cover everything, I will try and divert the same number of, devote the same number of words to each of these armies and we'll just go right through the front in each of these discussions. And I think there you get to 
a real sense that this is um, uh, it's a complicated complicated story. What was so remarkable to me was the ways that Kluge, for one, at the level of the general staff, speaking to Hitler, and then in the communication of the generals further down the line, were leaving these loopholes that would allow, in a crisis, their men to withdraw. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Especially since that idea of the German army is, you know, oh, this is, uh, you know, extremely rigid. And if you don't follow orders, you you have some terrible punishment. And yet you can see it's partly also this Auftrags tactic, this command style. They do devolve uh, responsibility. But in this case, they're also desiring it. I, I think there's a real desire for men to operate on their own, because the less you feed up about what you're doing, the less I have to say, well, I was aware that these guys aren't always following Hitler's order to the letter. And I actually don't want them to follow Hitler's order to the letter. There's all these understandings. And in some ways, it's hard to chart because, I mean, as a as a, a scholar, you, you need to ground your work in source material. But then at the same time, I think one of the benefits of, of spending a lot of time in the German military archive is uh, I, I'm sure if I'd spent even more, I'd have found even more. You know, reading everything for any given period, especially a, a period like three months on the Eastern Front, is actually a phenomenal undertaking. You, you can read in the German military archive for months if you want on any given campaign. There's just that much paper. Um, and I have to say, I was kind of surprised at how much I found. In some, t- in some cases, it's, it's quite flagrant. I mean, they are openly contravening Hitler's order and, and writing that and saying that. But I think, as you say, that these loopholes that they're creating, that's, that's where it gets really interesting because I think that's this, that's this creating a gray space to allow men to still do what they were trained to do, which is to you know, operate on their own terms. But that nominally, if you read the Hitler order, both the 18th of December version and then there's sort of a reissuing, I guess you could say, in early January, in part because Hitler's worried, hang on. What's these guys don't seem to be observing it. There, there are cases where the, the front line seems to have moved. And so he reissues the order. It doesn't have uh, the desired effect. I mean, and that's understandable. If, you're, if your own life is at risk as, as, a, as, a, as a company commander or a battalion commander, yeah, you're probably going to innovate to save your life and the lives of your men. And time and again, I think that's what we're seeing. On the issue of innovation, the myth of the winter counteroffensive is well-equipped Soviets and freezing Germans unable to adapt. As you point out, though, necessity is the mother of all invention. And there are a number of interesting ways that the Germans manage to adapt to an elastic defense in the middle of, of winter with frozen ground. Mm. What types of things were you seeing that allowed the Germans to adapt to this sort of fighting retreat? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, you know, when I start the research for this, because I know that I'm going to end up reading a lot of different war diaries, and I think every historian knows that problem of being halfway through your research, having some epiphany of, oh, gosh, this seems to be very important. Oh, God, do I have to go back through everything I've already read looking now for this? So, you know, I, I was kind of spending some time doing the preliminary research, more reading the, the the older secondary literature. And luckily there was enough moments in there where I thought, wow, that's really interesting how they are coping with the the deficiencies under which the, the, they're suffering. And that I, that I sort of made that a category. And what became particularly interesting is all of the top-down research, all the stuff in the military archive, that didn't really shed much light on any of that because these guys are just in their own command uh, staffs and, and, the, and the, the improvisation is 
is if they're doing it, they're not writing about it, and it's probably relatively minimal. But when you read the letters and the diaries, memoirs are less interesting to me, but I still read them, uh, of people who went through this, that's when you see remarkable levels of improvisation. So you know how how do they how do they survive in these in these horrendous conditions sometimes it's as i said before it's it brings out the worst in the german army i mean there's no limit to what they will do and this isn't as much my research this is the wonderful research that's done by others you know if you look at people like jeff rutherford uh he's got a wonderful book from by cambridge looking at uh war and the war of annihilation so he basically follows three divisions and he looks at the fact that look just because german armies in a given area are occupying a certain space that doesn't mean just because of their ideological training that they'll treat everybody terribly they often can even treat them very well what he says is the key ingredient is military necessity so if their ability to function as a military unit is in any way compromised or indeed enhanced by doing something to the population they will do it because military necessity is everything and i think that that thesis holds very true for this period in fact it was very helpful to have that in my head because if they recognize, well, we have a certain, you know, we need these villages and there's just not enough huts here to accommodate all our men, you better believe those civilians are going to be out in the snow. Uh, and there's no real compulsion about it. Or if we're falling back through this territory and, uh, frankly, this is not where we're going to try and hold the line and this could all be of use to the Soviets, we'll burn everything and we'll take anything of use. This really brings out that, that side to the Wehrmacht. And so part of the improvisation is that. But a lot of it is is just remarkable levels of innovation. So they come up with all these concoctions, I guess. This is just perhaps an example for what will keep your gun from freezing. Now, look, I didn't go out and get these products and test them, but these guys writing these these memoirs or these letters and would say, yeah, actually, if you do these things in this condition, it would actually keep the gun functioning. Uh, and, and sometimes it was just completely they didn't have some magical con- concoction. It would be as simple as, well, we keep the firing pin for the machine gun in our shorts because uh, that keeps it warm. Or they would, again, we would center everything around a, a village and all of the guns were kept in the village, uh, sorry, in the in the huts where the, where the warm uh, conditions were. And if we were attacked, everyone would grab their weapons and run out to the defensive positions and they were still warm. Once we started firing, they would stay warm. And that was not always the case for the Soviets, of course, who have been exposed much longer. Sometimes it would be the case that when we went out into the battlefield to gather what we could, their weapons were frozen. This is why there wasn't so much fire, uh, so much enemy fire. And you would discover, okay, so they, they did have ways of trying to innovate here. But one of the other things I noticed just talking about village defense was they had a whole system for how to fortify uh, a Soviet village. A Soviet village is typically... Uh, not very seriously constructed. They're wooden huts or sometimes even mud huts. But they had a whole way of, you know, if you pile up the snow in this way and you pack it very densely and then you put a blanket on it and you wet the blanket, it freezes, then you can pack more snow to the point where this will actually absorb a bullet. Or we put, you know, pile up the wood from, uh, you know, that we have, or if we have a piece of steel or anything like that, we put that on the outer parts of the village. We strategically place our minds on any uh, approach. And they even build walls like these snow walls between the huts that, uh, again, are so large that they can and absorb bullets. And you can see how they've really thought about this and constructed these winter fortresses that are actually quite effective. I mean, I think if the Soviets bring up heavy artillery, 
a lot of these local defenses are, are less successful, but a lot of the time the Soviets don't have that. One of the one of the real failings for the Soviet offensive is the fact that they have artillery, they have actually preponderance of artillery, but that doesn't mean they can always bring it to bear at the places they need it, especially if, as the Germans have withdrawn, the Soviets are the ones facing this issue of very, very deep snow and tanks, uh, they don't have very many tanks at all. So you've got to move these things. I mean, what sort of a capacity do the Soviets have to move the artillery? How many shells can they get to the forward lines? They're often operating under real shortages. And the other thing I would say just quickly, because it's, it's a nice story, is the Luftwaffe. I mean, obviously, air operations are important in modern warfare. And uh, the, so the, the Germans come up with this idea because their engines freeze. If you imagine this, uh, the nose of a plane has the engine in it, the propeller at the front, and then the engine in it. And they realize that these are freezing up. So they actually come up with these, these ways of keeping them serviceable, either constructing, there's a number of different methods, but either constructing a kind of device that plugs on like a great big sort of nose cone that goes on the front that they, they heat in order to keep the engine uh, warm and, not, and free from freezing up, and then they can fly the thing. Or they actually just drive it into the planes into huts. Uh, they just bore a hole in the hut, drive the plane literally right up to its wings into the hut and keep the hut warm. And, and it's just remarkable what they came up with. Under these conditions of military necessity, you start to see the relationship between the soldiers and the civilians reach these barbaric situations. Mm. What is the what is the psychology behind that? How are how are people reacting to this in their diaries and letters? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I think these people have done a lot more work on this. But recent, I mean, I think that you see a spectrum of behaviors. There's no question there. But the overriding sense for the German Wehrmacht is military necessity, and even if you have people who are sometimes questioning the behavior, there's an enormous amount of social pressure to enact these kinds of things. I mean, I remember there is one guy who was describing going into a, a Soviet village and having to kick all the people out. And he is asking the question, essentially, in his diary, what are these people supposed to do? But it's also clear that the sergeant has his revolver out. And if these people don't disappear, worse will happen to them. So, you know, these are the kinds of dilemmas that these guys are confronted with. But Essentially, that you know, I think this is where you do see a degree of the ideological training. I mean, you read the most extraordinary things if you read a lot of these. Especially the memoirs aren't useful here. The memoirs are often written years after, with a sense of just exactly what that state was and what kind of, you know, how how people viewed these things. But if you look at diaries and letters, you get a much more authentic sense of the German officer and and the German soldier. And it is remarkable the extent to which. The Nazi experiment, you know, it has abrogated a lot of these early modern ideas. I mean, the Enlightenment is this period in Western civilization, which brings in the idea of rationale and, and morality and science. And, and that is to no small extent being questioned in, in Nazism. This kind of idea that we're just going to do what is best for us, and we're not interested in law, and we're not interested in, in these old Christian ideas of morality. And the extent to which survival is about being a hard man. And letters and diaries basically chart this process. When someone comes onto the Eastern Front, there's a kind of a period in those opening days and weeks where they, if you look at the letters, uh, they are adjusting to this phenomenal sense of violence and this, this new calculus, which has moved from 
you know, respect for human life to, nope, we just have to do whatever is necessary to survive. And these people are exposed to real horrors. And this is a period of adjustment. And then after this period, if you keep reading these, these letters, there's an acceptance that this is just how it is. And the most remarkable forms of violence, and not even just perpetrated at the front where we imagine there is a lot of violence and this is war, but what German soldiers will see in the rear areas and continual perpetration of, of violence is just so accepted. And it's always couched in terms of the necessity, the need to survive. So they'll hear about, well, there was a, an attack on a German supply column. And, you know, now we need to go in and uh, to the nearest village and, and essentially extract some kind of retribution. And that's almost seen as, well, that's deserved. This is, even though there's no correlation necessarily between whoever attacked that supply column and the nearest village, maybe there is, maybe there's not. Nobody knows, nobody cares. That's just what happens. That's just the, the way it is. And because I think also beyond all this ideological side to this, there's also just a sense that in order to survive in the East, these men form very cohesive units and your comrades are not just men you fight with. This is your kind of surrogate family now. And if the ethos is very understanding of this level of violence, in fact, it's absolutely necessary to survive. The guy who puts his head above the parapet and basically says, I think this is unacceptable, very, very much the exception. You get acculturated into this. And I think it's 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 for people like us who are trying to understand that without having, as far as my life experiences, I've never experienced anything like that. It feels so foreign. And I think what I get when I read these kinds of letters and diaries is more than likely the step between the good person you think you are, if you are exposed to these horrendous situations and your entire social group substantiates it and tells you it's right. I think never underestimate how much you take your cue from your social world and how difficult it is to cut yourself off completely, especially in an extremely stressful environment from your own group. You almost need them for the coping mechanism. And it's interesting how that is a driver of behavior, even in the worst form. And I think people who've done a lot more studies in this area are trying to quantify what is the German soldier. And I think that is the new dimension. There's no dispute anymore that the Wehrmacht is a criminal organization right up there with the SS. I mean, there's just so much blood on their hands. But the debate has devolved into, well, if it's a pyramid structure, how far down the path does, do we have to go to see this kind of behavior? In other words, to what extent is the average German soldier complicit in all of this? Uh, and that's not to say that they're all going out and shooting people, but to what extent when they hear about it, are they worried by this? Do they make any kind of critical commentary or do they substantiate that by making some sort of positive comment? That's, I guess, where we're at now, trying to understand what the, the, the German Wehrmacht was at the lowest level and their, their ability to accept and indeed perhaps even support and at the end perpetrate these kinds of violent acts. Well, on that note, where is your research taking you next? Can we expect another installment? Uh, I am working. I've actually got a book coming in 2020 looking at German soldiers' field posts. Um, it's just an edited collection, but it, I think there's not that much in English. There's an enormous number of books that have often been self-published in German. And it was very interesting for myself and another historian over in the States, uh, Craig Luther, to sort of look at this the fact that there's just not that many 
published primary materials, a lot of memoirs in English, they seem to get published, but there's not that much field post. And so we started looking at the field post and we got a very good publisher who would give us a lot of words. That was kind of our criteria. We want to publish a lot of these things. So we got a a lot of words and we're just basically putting together a whole smorgasbord. I think we've got something in excess of 200 different German soldiers who write letters and from all across the Eastern Front in 1941 and we've basically got that coming out but the next project my sort of next major study for not just an edited collection is uh, looking at uh, the private correspondence of uh, four different German Panzer commanders Um, because I think what we're seeing in that in a nutshell is uh, a very different representation on the war from what they would write in their post-war memoirs or what they might have written in their wartime orders. It's kind of charting this this private self. Um, and I think that's a really interesting space, also because hardly anyone's ever looked at these letters before. So they're really, you know, a, sort of a vital primary source. So that's that's what's uh, that's in the pipeline. Two fascinating projects. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have an excuse to have you back when the time comes, but it's been a pleasure today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in History. Once again, we've been talking to David Stahl about Retreat from Moscow, a new history of Germany's winter campaign, 1941 to 1942. Retreat from Moscow is available from Farah, Strauss, and Giraud as of 2019. Stahl is also the author of four other books about the war in the East and, as you just heard, has a real knack for capturing the experience of soldiers at different levels of the war machine without ever losing track of how all the pieces come together in the bigger picture. Highly recommended. For those of you out there looking for that rare mix of readability, humanity, operations, and strategy. To that, I'd add that it's guaranteed to challenge what you thought you knew about the Eastern Front. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then.